This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Welcome into the program. I know that we're getting started a little bit late. We're doing a Friday night show, which is a touch unconventional, but there is a very good reason, and that good reason is we couldn't get John Merrill, the Secretary of State for the state of Alabama, on earlier, so we we worked around his schedule because, I mean, as you can imagine, an election just happened. He's a very, very busy guy, but we did get him on the program. He will be coming up right after this segment, and so Secretary of State John Merrill is coming up on this show. We've also got a ton to go through. We've got the new mask mandate that has been put out by Governor Ivey. We've got the election results that have come out because uh, we frankly had to recover from doing the election coverage. That was a massive, massive undertaking, and unfortunately it yielded very little results because of how bad the, the internet service was. I, I heard a lot of complaints from fans that unfortunately you guys weren't able to listen in, and I do really, really apologize for that. We did the best that we could, but when you don't have a really strong internet connection and a really good internet stream, then you, you can't do a podcast. That's just the way that it works, unfortunately. If you do want to go back and watch it, there is the entirety of it, the entire three hours of coverage that we did live from Sweet Creek, Sweet Creek Farms. You can watch all three hours of that on the Tactics YouTube channel now, and you can watch it. It's, it's not skipping or jumping or whatever. You can see the whole thing, and, and we have the recording of it. You can also check out my Barry Moore interview and my Reed Ingram interview, both of those, one being a, a state representative, and of course Barry Moore being our new representative of the 2nd District of Alabama, and you can see his interview that I did with him literally just minutes after he found out that he was going to be the United States, he's going to the United States House of Representatives to represent Alabama's second district, which is a great segue into our first segment, which is how the heck did the elections go? What was going on there? And so we're going to dive right into that. The Alabama races, frankly, went pretty much as expected. And that really comes as a surprise to nobody because, well, they went as expected. So <laughs> not a surprise to anybody. Alabama is a ruby red state. And because of that, our elections, our general elections tend to be kind of boring. Now, our primary elections are very exciting because whoever wins those basically wins the general. And so there's a lot more money spent on those. There's a lot more contention. But suffice it to say that now, basically everybody that won the Republican primary wound up winning state office or local office or whatever it was they were running for. And we just talked about Barry Moore. We did our election night coverage live from his victory party. We can call it a victory party now, I guess, because he's actually won the the seat. And so we went over to his election watch party and hung out there at Sweet Creek Farms right here in Montgomery, which did a great job hosting a great local business, which is owned by Representative Reed Ingram. Be sure to go over there and check it out. Really good stuff over there. It's kind of like a little peach park right here in the city of Montgomery. So I highly, highly recommend that. But we were over there and, and, and having a good time watching the numbers roll in and everything and found out, of course, that Barry Moore did win and got to do a little interview with him. So be sure to skip over there. There's about, I don't know, we did about eight minutes or so with him because of course he was very busy at the time. So we didn't have a ton of time, but we did speak to him. So if you want to check those interviews out, be sure to do that at the Tactics YouTube channel. 
And Barry, I think, is likely to be a real conservative. And if you watch that interview, you can see why. If you watch my past interviews and my past interactions with him, if you watch his debate performance against Jeff Coleman, there's a myriad of reasons why you should believe that he will be a conservative in the United States House and actually represent Alabama's values as a representative of Alabama. Boy, that's a novel concept. I wish more of our representatives would actually do that. So Barry Moore is, I think, going to be a real conservative, somebody that is probably going to be in the Freedom Caucus. I mean, he's going to be on par with your Mo Brooks and your Gary Palmer and your Louis Gohmertz and that, those kind of guys. You're going to see him run in those high-level conservative circles. He's not going to be one of the moderate Republicans. I can't really see him going that route. And I asked him about that. I, I said in the interview and, and talked to him about you know, Barry, nobody comes back from Washington more conservative than when they left. And he said, well, I have a record. I've gone to Montgomery and, and stayed just as conservative there as I was when I came back. And I didn't compromise my values. And that's one of the reasons that I ran is because I knew that that wouldn't, that, 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 that wouldn't happen to me. And he just sort of touted his record, which if you've got Barry Moore's record, you can do. He's got the record to run on. Because, of course, he was a representative in the House of Representatives here in the state of Alabama and did a fantastic job there. He has an actual conservative record, and that's one of the main reasons that I supported him in the primaries is because this guy's not an unknown. We know who he is. We know how he votes. Now, granted, tensions are higher in the United States House of Representatives. There's a lot more money running around. There's a lot higher stakes in terms of, of what it means for the entire country as opposed to what it means just for the state of Alabama. But Barry Moore is... He, he's not a newbie to this. He's done it a little bit. He, he's not really a lifelong career politician or anything. He's not made a livelihood out of this. But the guy knows what he's doing. He has the experience. He has the record. I'm not worried about Barry Moore going up there and suddenly becoming a, a softy, a rhino. That's just not something that I see happening. Now, could it happen? Yes, it could. And if it does, you better believe that we will hold him accountable for that and call him out when he makes votes on things that he shouldn't. So that's something that we're going to do here on the program, but I don't foresee that being an issue. Jerry Carl is the only other new member of the Alabama delegation. All the other members of the delegation from the state of Alabama in the U.S. House of Representatives stayed the same. Jerry Carl is the new face along with Barry Moore. Now... I, he seems to me like just a sort of generic Alabama Republican. Like, he is the the plain rapper GOP. He's not the premium package. He's not the XL. He's not the family size. He's just the generic Republican. And that means he's probably going to have an A rating from the NRA, and it means that he's probably going to have a good rating from the National Right to Life and do very little. I don't see this guy being a big voice. I don't see him being a champion of conservative principles or anything like that. Now, maybe I'm wrong. He might surprise me. But it doesn't seem like that is the case, and there's a couple reasons for that. I looked through his issues, and I looked through some of the things that he has said in, in speeches before, some of the things that he believes. He does support some very conservative ideas. For example, he openly advocated for auditing the Federal Reserve, he did say that if a balanced budget amendment were to come up, he would be in favor of it. He would want to pass that amendment to the Constitution, which, here's the thing. A lot of conservatives do say that, 
and there are some that mean it, and there are some that are saying it because they know there is not a snowball's chance and you know what, that it's actually going to pass. Because the vast majority of Congress people, some, uh, pretty much all of them on the left, and a big portion of them on the right, do not want to where they have to actually balance a budget and not run deficits. They don't want that because that would cut into their port barrel spending. It would reduce the chances of them getting reelected. And so because of that, then they are not going to vote in favor of it. They just won't do it. And that would be true even if it were a normal federal law that required a majority from the House and the Senate and a signature from the president. We're talking about a constitutional amendment. Three-fifths of the states to ratify, two-thirds of the Senate to pass it, uh, th this thing is just not going to go through anytime soon. Now, maybe theoretically in the future, when we had, if, if we had like a super conservative renaissance here, we could see something like that happening. But right now, it's not going to happen. And because of that, some people that want to basically put themselves out there as a fiscal conservative will say that knowing that there's really no chance that it would pass or that they'd have to support it in a very realistic way. So maybe that is a hoax. Maybe that's just something he does for show. Maybe it's 100% legitimate. He also talked about repealing the death tax, another big, important Republican talking point, which is, is genuinely conservative. But he also favors things like infrastructure spending and repeal and replace Obamacare, not repeal Obamacare and just repeal more laws and repeal regulation, get more red tape out. No, repeal and replace. So we're going to repeal Obamacare. We're going to replace it with Romney care. We're going to replace it with GOP care, whatever you want to call it. That's not the talking point. That is not the language of conservatism. So if I had to guess, Jerry Carl is going to be one of those guys that has a really high rating from the NRA because he's good on guns and a really high rating from NARAL because he's good on the issue of life, which are both good things. I'm not trying to detract from that. And he's probably going to be, if I had to guess, one of those guys that's floating somewhere between a 60 and a 65 score on Freedom Works and Conservative Review and Heritage and all those other tracking sites. That he's not going to be really conservative. He's He seems to me to be much more in the mold of a Mike Rogers, another delegate from the state of Alabama, than a Gary Palmer or a Mo Brooks. I just don't see him being one of the uber conservatives. So I think we got, of the new, the fresh faces, so fresh, so face, as Ben Shapiro would say. So of the fresh faces from the state of Alabama, we've got Barry Moore, Jerry Carl. Barry will probably be a real conservative. Jerry will probably be your run-of-the-mill basic uh, default Republican votes. And, and that would be my projection as to what I think is going to happen here. Now, Tuberville, of course, Tommy Tuberville winning the election, and we announced that and had his victory speech there on our special the other night as well. Tommy Tuberville, who is the new senator from the state of Alabama in a crushing victory, which made me extremely happy watching Doug Jones not even come close. I mean, not even in the ballpark barely getting over about 30% of the vote. I believe the final vote tally was 32. So Doug Jones didn't come anywhere near the Senate. And I have legitimate complaints and gripes about Tommy Tuberville and how I thought that there were several issues that it, it made him a flawed candidate in many ways. He still absolutely just destroyed Doug Jones, which I think even further reinforces my theory that 
we could have won with Tommy Tuberville, or we could have won even with somebody like Roy Moore. It would have been close to Roy Moore, and I'm not suggesting that Roy Moore would have been the preferred candidate. I'm just saying that we probably would have won no matter who we run ran in that particular one, especially because there is a bit of a revenge vote factor going on there with Doug Jones. I think that Jeff Sessions would have won. I think that John Merrill, if he had stayed in the race, would have won. There's several people that if they had stayed in the race for the United States Senate would have won that seat against Doug Jones. And I think that it's, of course, no surprise that Tommy Tuberville just shellacked him in every conceivable way. I mean, that, that was a bigger victory than most of the six victories over the University of Alabama while he was the coach. All right. So on that, the only real surprise in the Alabama races was Lisa Keith losing to Chestnut. I, I don't understand why. I, I think Lisa Keith's doing a fantastic job. I've known her for years. She's really good when it comes to policy. She's one of the few people that is willing to actually say what is going on in the public school system. I don't understand why Lisa Keith would have lost that race. It was relatively close for an Alabama race. But she just couldn't cut it. And I hate that for her. I hope that she continues to be active in education in the state of Alabama. But, you know... Losing the election, we'll have to deal with having a Democrat on the State Board of Education, which is truly, truly unfortunate and kind of surprising. I'm not saying that I expected Lisa Keith to absolutely have the kind of blowout victory that a Doug Jones would, but I certainly expected her to do better than she did. Losing to Chestnut is something that is a real problem for the Board of Education, in my opinion. Now, let's go ahead and look at the amendment results. We can go ahead and pull this up here. These are the amendments, the ballot measures that were on for the state of Alabama. And you can see here that uh, every single amendment did pass except for Amendment 2. And they all passed in fairly convincing fashion. Obviously, some more than others, but not a single one passed by less than 60%. It's frustrating, but as a general rule, Alabamians just tend to pass whatever amendment is on the ballot. But I am proud of y'all. You did resist what I considered was the worst amendment on the list, which is Amendment 2. Now, granted, it was extremely close. Look at that, 49.7 to 50.3. I mean, that is about as close as it gets. And yet, here we are. You, It, it did fail. By the narrowest of margins, but it did fail, and that's a very good thing because there were... I, I hate this, too, because that amendment was just way too big, and this is part of the reasons that I don't like really big bills. Big bills tend to have really good points that should get through, but they've got a lot of bad things in them as well. I really appreciate short laws, not because I think that laws should should not be long or I have some kind of moral aversion to it or whatever, even though you, I guess you could make that argument. Ultimately, what I'm trying to do is it should be simple, easy to understand, written in plain English, and on top of that, it should be small because it doesn't do much. That same ballot measure could have been divided out into five or six different amendments. And I probably would have voted for at least two or three of them because I thought there was a lot of good contained in that amendment, but just having several other procedural things like expanding the Judicial Inquiry Commission and having the entire Supreme Court appoint the 
the chief that's going to be working with the chief justice, uh, basically his assistant, having the entirety of them pick it instead of just the chief justice himself picking the person that is going to be answering directly to him. And it, that just didn't make sense to me. And so there were several, unfortunately, bad things in this bill, but props to the people of Alabama for actually doing their homework and saying, hey, th this one sucks. We, we don't want this one. The other one that was disappointing, the other law that did pass that I was hoping would not pass, you can see here it was the one that had to, uh, by the way, you've got to really appreciate the sleight of hand here by the New York Times. That's where I'm pulling this. The, the way that they categorize Amendment 4 is removes racial language from the Constitution. Okay, that may be the intended goal, and who knows, that might even be what actually winds up resulting from that constitutional amendment. But that's not what the measure was. That's a completely incorrect framing of what was going on there. So the New York Times puts that out there, and I don't know if it was actually malicious or they were just ill-informed or what, but this particular ballot measure allows the legislature to come together and just unilaterally adjust the Constitution. That's not the way that this is supposed to happen. In the state of Alabama, if you want to overhaul the Constitution, you have to have an actual constitutional committee. This is a goofy half measure and we need to just go ahead and start over from scratch and forge a new Alabama constitution. I've been an advocate of that for many years, but all this does is sort of take a band-aid approach to it and lets the legislature just go in and start altering the constitution. That's not a good idea. That's, that's bad all the way around. And so I'm actually far more worried about the implications of that when the other one had several things that I found annoying but weren't going to, like, break the system or anything. This could at least potentially break the system. This could really screw up Alabama's constitution if they're not extremely careful. And it's just a bad idea overall. There's a procedure to amend the constitution. We need to abide by that and or start over and have a new constitution, but this is just a bad measure. This is sort of a, a get-rich-quick scheme when it comes to politics, just trying to go around the system and get what they wanted without having to actually go through the hard work of doing it. And I will say, though, uh, the this has to be, in my opinion, the best election day for me, just on predictions, in a very, very long time. So far, I have called every single state in the Electoral College correctly. Now, there are some people that are calling Pennsylvania for Joe Biden since he just barely eked out a very slight margin of error victory over Joe Biden that was announced earlier today. But here's the thing. That may wind up coming back. And if that does take place then, of course, we'll be following it right here on News Radio 1440. But that that's the only one that's sort of in contention, and it's so close, it's going to be a recount. I don't think that news organizations should actually be calling it at this point anyway because of how close it is and because there are some legal challenges, which there ought to be, by the way, because of how close this race is and because of some of the suspicious activity that has been going on specifically in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. 
Also, the state of Arizona, the only state that I probably got wrong, it is not looking like Donald Trump can catch up to Joe Biden in Arizona right now, which means that even if Trump does get Pennsylvania, Joe Biden is the winner. If Joe Biden just retains all the states that he has now, including Michigan and Wisconsin, and on top of that, he is able to keep uh, he, he is able to keep Arizona. Trump just doesn't have the numbers at that point. And so he will be president if that is the case. Now, it, it may not be the case, but right now, all signs point to that being the case. But overall, looking at the night, it was a great night for Republicans nationwide. I mean, a very, very, very good night for Republicans, especially when you consider that Republicans were expected to lose all kinds of seats, that they were expected to lose power. For example, it was a 10-seat gain in the House when most people were predicting about a 12-seat loss in the House. This was not a year that was suited for Republicans. And yet, in the House, where everybody has to run every two years, in the House, which is a the surest gauge, I guess is the best way to say it, the, the best measuring stick for where the American people are, they said no to wokeism. They said no to intersectionality. They said yes to conservatism. They increased the amount of Republicans in the House, which when you have a sitting president, especially one that's as disliked as Trump, that's just absolutely astounding. That's amazing that down-ticket Republicans did as well as they did. With an incumbent president with a low approval rating, somehow the House manages to get more seats. That is a good, good sign. And I think it might even be a sign, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, maybe I'm being overly optimistic, but it may even be a sign that people are, they're tired of this tribalism garbage, they're tired of being sectioned off into certain groups, and so they, may, maybe this was just a little bit of a factor, I don't think it's the only one, but they were like, you know what, I really don't like Trump and I want to vote him out because Joe Biden seems like he's basically a, a, a potted plant that can't do anything at this point, he'll be President Ficus by the time this is all over. But I don't really want them to have the keys to the kingdom. I don't want that guy running my entire country without some kind of check, some kind of brake pump in there. So I'm going to vote for the Republican senator and the Republican House representative here because I don't want Joe Biden to unilaterally have control. By the way, the Republicans even made modest but significant—well, not modest but significant because that would be a contradiction—modest but noteworthy, we'll say it that way gains at the state level. So this was a year that they poured millions of dollars into several state level things to help bolster the state legislature. And even that didn't seem to work. They wound up coming out pretty much even. I don't know. We'll have to wait until all the smoke clears. We wound up basically coming out even on that front. And so that's really, really good. We lost two senators and we gained two senators. So on that front, we wound up breaking even as well. Republicans retain their majority and a majority that will allow them that will allow them to continue doing what they are doing. And that's important because that's going to act as a check on Joe Biden. Because if the Republicans are in charge of that, when it comes to things like Supreme Court nominees and uh, when it comes to different bills, different spending measures, really what's going on here is Mitch McConnell, if that is the case, becomes the most powerful man in the world. 
not because he has less power on a technical level than Joe Biden, but Joe Biden will basically be rendered unable to do a whole lot if every bill that he approves of winds up working its way through the House by the slimmest of margins and then winds up making its way to the Senate where people vote against it. And so you can very quickly see in that scenario how Mitch McConnell, it becomes very, very important that he remains our Senate majority leader. So we, we're seeing a likely 12-seat gain in the House. We're seeing a stagnation. In other words, we, we lost two, we gained two, so we keep the same numbers in the Senate. This actually does look like a repudiation on the radical left. They didn't want Biden to win. They just wanted Trump to lose. And even though they wanted Trump to lose, they felt that it was wholly appropriate to say, all right, I don't want Trump anymore. I'm going to put my mark down for Joseph Robinette Biden. And yes, that is his real middle name. I'm going to put down my mark for that. However, I'd really, really rather Republicans have some say in this and it not just be Democrats up in Washington doing whatever the heck that they want. And that's a good sign. That means that the American populace, they, they don't like this woke culture. They don't like the Black Lives Matter and their cities burning to the ground. They don't like a lot of the insane radical leftist stuff that has been coming out there. And, and you know who understands that is the old establishment Democrats. They were livid today, basically blaming their colleagues for the massive loss when it comes to seats and the Senate. And this is a pretty big loss, especially when you consider the number of turnout that we had and the fact that it seems as though there were an awful lot of people that voted for Joe Biden, but then voted for a lot of Republicans after Joe Biden in that sense. So let's go ahead and take a look at this lessons for the GOP. Because there are some things that we need to take away here. And I think the number one, because there's several, and we'll be hashing that out as we get information on the elections. But there's one that stands above all else. One thing that the GOP needs to learn from how this election panned out. And that is, stop pandering, you morons. And I mean that as sincerely as the day is long. Because when you're breaking down who voted for what office, and also who voted for Republicans as opposed to Democrats in the demographic range, that tells a very, very interesting story. Donald Trump increased, not decreased, increased his share of the black vote and also increased his share of the Latino vote. There were several other t t no, t key demographics that he did not increase, that he fell substantially, and it was usually college-educated white liberals. Or at least people that sort of think of themselves as moderate but couldn't bring themselves to pull the lever for Trump again. Because there were a lot of people that apparently voted for Trump that didn't vote for him this time. That number is not really as big as some people might lead you to believe because we had really high turnout this time and not all that high turnout in 2016, certainly not when Barack Obama was on the ballot. But... All that being said, this does show that you can make gains in the black community if you just reach out to them. You don't have to pander. You don't have to talk down to them. You don't have to court them as though they are a monolith the way that the Democrats do and say, this is what I'm going to do for black America. Get that crap out of there. Say, this is what I'm going to do for all Americans. This is what I'm going to do for you as an individual. 
People resonate with that. Because you notice that Trump doesn't make a big deal out of skin color. And I think that's one of the things that people like about him. It's one of the reasons I think that these allegations of him being a racist are just stupid. Trump has a lot of moral failings. He is a very imperfect individual. But the idea that he's some kind of closet racist is just stupid. And the Latino vote, exactly the same way. He actually drastically increased his share of the Latino vote. It was already higher than the black vote, but he increased it even more than before. He got pretty close to, if I'm looking at the numbers correctly, he got pretty close to 30% of the Latino vote. That's huge. Because remember, when you're looking at other races, you can see a lot of it being split down 50-50. But if Trump can consistently pull not, you know, astronomical numbers, but decent numbers of Latinos, decent numbers of black people away from the Democrat Party, that is a win for the GOP, even if Donald Trump himself winds up losing and being replaced by the walking corpse known as Joe, Joe Biden, uh, the, the kid sniffer in chief, as it were. But this is a repudiation of everything that the left has been saying because they believe that to be able to court black voters in order to court Latino voters, you have to be down with Black Lives Matter. And yeah, there's all this systematic racism, 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 everybody's a racist and you can't do anything on your own. You see, poor little black man, you are not capable of actually building something for yourself or accomplishing things for yourself. You need the strong, benevolent government, which is in the control of the Democrat Party, to come down and assist you because you're not capable of doing things on your own. You're not capable of, of being successful and accomplishing things. That is the message of the DNC. And for a very long time, the Republicans have tried to do a slightly softer version of that message to black voters. They're sort of the, the diet inequality police. They want things like affirmative action. They want things that are put in place that make no sense. They want things like hate crime legislation, which from a legal standpoint, there's no reason to have something like that. They want all of those things, but they want like a slightly softer version of the Democrats, and that's not going to fly. You're just exactly the same thing as them, but a less serious version of it. That's not appealing to voters, white, black, whatever. And the same thing with Latino voters. There has been a lie that the GOP has bought into for about 50 years now. And I say this because of Ronald Reagan and his amnesty. Even he bought into this idea that the only way to court Hispanic voters is to be really soft on crime and border immigration issues to, to not be a hawk when it comes to the border, to basically just kind of catch and release and let people through that if you're seen as too harsh on the border, then you will never be able to get the Latino vote. That's a load of garbage, y'all. Look at what Donald Trump did. Arguably the most hawkish presidential candidate in history made that a centerpiece of his campaign. It was the issue that he ran on. And then turned around, became president, won the election, and then made Jeff Sessions, who has been the biggest border hawk for the past 30 years, his attorney general. And Hispanic guys are watching this and go, yeah, I'll vote for that guy. You know why? Because legal immigrants, you know, the ones that actually are supposed to be allowed to vote, the ones that become citizens, 
they are as adamantly against illegal immigration as anybody that you will ever find because they see it as someone cheating the system when they played by the rules. The reason that Donald Trump won in Florida handedly is because he did outreach to the Latin America community. He did it specifically to the Cubans who, with a Cuban, all you have to do is see Joe Biden refusing to denounce Antifa and all these jerks wearing Che Guevara shirts and being like, okay, I'm out. Americans of all colors, of all demographics, of all sexes, of which there are only two, came out and looked at what the left had to offer, which basically now has devolved into just wokeness, political correctness, and everybody's a racist. And they said, no thanks, we'd like to have something else, please. And that's a really, really good sign for the country. I, I want Trump to win, I do. I want him to be president. He's the guy that I voted for. You know that. He would be leaps and bounds better than Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. But here's the thing. Even if he winds up losing the presidency, this was a very, very good night for Republicans. And the fact that we did have a very good night, and when it comes to the down-ballot stuff, that means that Joe Biden is going to get significantly less of his agenda done when he is president, because... If that happens, he will only have the House. And by a very, very thin margin, he's going to be able to not, he's not going to be able to do very much when that takes place. But to me, that is the biggest thing is just, Republicans, you've been doing this wrong for my entire lifetime, the entire time I've been following politics. Republicans, you've been doing it wrong. You've been pandering to black people by buying into this narrative that, you know, that they can't do it on their own, that there's all this systematic racial injustice everywhere, and you sort of play softball with that idea. You don't go as hard as the left, but then you're just a diet version of them. The same thing with Latinos. Uh, they say, well, you know, basically we should just have open borders, and the Republicans say, okay, but can we just, you know, at least pretend like we don't have open borders? Can we at least make it look like it's hard to come into the country? We're, we're not going to actually, you know, prosecute anybody that comes across, but at least let us make it look that way. That's not the way to win those voters, guys. You can be tough on the border, like President Trump. You can say that Antifa and Black Lives Matter are evil, terrible organizations that tear up people's homes, people's businesses, and should be denounced totally, and win the black vote. That can be done. Donald Trump increased his share of the black vote while doing all of those things. And so that's what you've got to realize is that the GOP sucks at this and have for a very long time. And, th and, and what Donald Trump has been able to do has absolutely proved that. You see, that, that's the great thing about Trump. Even if he's no longer president in the next few days, if we find out that President Trump is going to be on his way out, we're going to have President Biden and then President Harris not long afterward, about, you know, maybe 48 hours after he's inaugurated. Um, that's what you've got to realize about this whole thing, is that Trump didn't just hit Democrats. He hit Republicans, too. He exposed an awful lot of things, and his legacy, I think, if he winds up walking out the door in the next couple of days, is going to be the different things, the different institutions that he exposed. Whether you're talking about deep-seated partisan corruption in the FBI, whether you're talking about an insanely biased media that now is just openly telling people, yes, we're socialists, yes, we're Marxists, 
the insane radicals on the left that are saying that we need to just get rid of, figure out a way to either punish Trump supporters and make them go away forever. Uh, the, the way that he exposed the things that are going on in the school systems, where he's talking about denouncing critical race theory and the 1619 Project. Uh, but when you're talking about the GOP, talking about how they're all talk, they don't do anything, they don't care about their voters, they don't care about you, they don't care about your problems as long as they get to stay in office. Donald Trump did expose all of those things, not always in the most graceful or tactful way, but he did bring it to the forefront, and that is a positive thing regardless of what side of the aisle you are on. So, as promised, we are going to get to the John Merrill interview that is coming up after this break when we come back right here on Tactics. Hey everybody, I'm here again with another cookie review from insomniacookies.com. That's insomniacookies.com. You can check out any of their physical locations right here in the Yellowhammer State in Tuscaloosa, Mobile, Auburn, or Birmingham. They really need to bring one to Montgomery, but I'm not going to hold that against them. If you are not in one of those cities, you can just order the cookies and it'll come in this great box, just like this one, insomniacookies.com. And today we're going to be doing one that uh, I'm really excited to review because I love this particular flavor of cookie. This is the white chocolate macadamia nut, so let's go ahead and dig in right now. Oh, very good, very good. You know, the chocolate chips, in this case, the white chocolate chips, they're very big, and there's there's a lot of them. One thing that always annoys me when you get cookies is typically what happens is whatever the flavor is, whatever the topping that's in the cookie, you don't get a whole lot of it, or it's not evenly spaced. And I get that. I mean, I've, I've made cookies before, too. I know that you don't have a whole lot of control over where the dough goes, but I don't. I guess it's just because there's such an abundance of it in the cookie dough from Insomnia Cookies that they seem to get spread out pretty well. And I actually like the fact that it look. It seems like the macadamia nuts are actually a little bit smaller, and so you get more of that spread throughout in this particular one. That's a fantastic cookie. And the thing is, I've told y'all about this. I'm going to be honest about my reviews, even though Insomnia Cookies sent me the free cookies and, and they're giving me a sponsorship, obviously. I'm going to be honest about the cookies. And there have been some cookies that, I mean, they're just fantastic. They just might not happen to necessarily be my favorite flavors. Now, some of them have been really good. Some of my favorites have been like the peanut butter cup or the original chocolate chip. I think this one may be my second or third favorite. Probably third favorite because I love the peanut butter cup and I love the mint chocolate, the, the chocolate cookie with the, the mint chips in it. That one's really good. This one is a third, maybe if not second. This is one of the best cookies I've ever had and I think it's probably the best white, white chocolate macadamia nut cookie that I've ever had. So be sure to check this out if you love the white chocolate macadamia. This is one of the best versions of it I've ever had. Probably the best. So check them out at insomniacookies.com. That is insomniacookies.com. was introduced, it was because of either poor administration and the use of the electronic poll book. So 
And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. My next guest is somebody who has been on the show several times, but maybe this is his most important interview he's done since he's been coming on the show. And it's just because of the circumstances surrounding everything. It is our own Secretary of State right here from the state of Alabama, the Secretary John Merrill. Welcome into the program. Thank you, Caleb. Always good to be with you. Yeah, and I got to tell you, you may be one of the few people that has had a more hectic three uh, past three days than I have. Well, you know, that's just part of it, my brother. All right, so... Now, I, I do, of course, want to, and I think the audience wants to hear about all of the craziness going on with varied elections in different states around the country when it comes to the Electoral College, and that is important. We are going to get to that. But before we get to that, how did election night go right here in the Yellowhammer State? Oh, it went extraordinarily well. I don't know that it could have been any better. Of course, we broke every record in the history of the state for voter participation. 2.3 million Alabamians going to the polls casting their ballot for the candidate of their choice. Um, we had just an unbelievable experience in all 1,980 polling sites in the state. Introduction of the new electronic poll books in 63 of the 67 counties, reducing the wait time dramatically. Mm -hmm. It was just a, a, an exceptional, exceptional day. And when you talk about decreasing the wait time, that was something that was desperately needed this year because uh, I had so many people, friends, neighbors, that actually told me they had to wait in line for a significant amount of time. I was like, I don't know what y'all were talking about because I went in five minutes is because I voted in the afternoon after most people already had. Uh, but but they said that there was just a massive turnout. There were lines out the door, and so decreasing that wait time probably really, really helped things out. Well, it did, and in some areas where we had wait times introduced, it was because of either poor administration in the use of the electronic poll book, mm -hmm. or it was also related to the facility that was being used as the polling site. So those are things that always have to be reviewed each and every election cycle, and then changes have to be made depending on what has occurred at that particular cycle and what's anticipated for the future. You know, I think that that's a perfect segue into one of the main points that I want to make here and, and ask about. John, we are looking at this and seeing places like Nevada, Arizona, Pennsylvania just take forever to get election results in. And you've got states like Alabama that seem to do it right away. Now, I know Alabama is a little bit different because we tended to vote overwhelmingly in one direction. And so it's not a tight race, which obviously helps decrease the time that it takes for people to call. But I'm looking at places like Florida which still had a fairly close race. It's the third largest state in the country. It's by far the most expensive swing state, and they reported and, and their vote was called at about midnight. So what's going right. on in these other states? Why, why can they not get the results out quicker? And Caleb, it should have been reported earlier in Florida. As a matter of fact, Governor DeSantis said on TV they thought they should have reported at about 8.15. Uh, I, I've not talked to Governor DeSantis, but I did talk to uh, Secretary Lee yesterday, and she told me that things went so smoothly. Uh, it's like nothing happened out of the ordinary. I mean, mm. they, they could have called it earlier, earlier in the evening. And again, like you said, Florida is the third most populous state in the union. So with that being the case, I just think that 
um, it, it's time for some of these states to address the way that they're doing things because there are concerns and problems that have been introduced because of the way that they've chosen to administer their election. And some of those things have been done this year for the first time in the history of those states. Mm -hmm. Those those are concerns and problems that we have because people have changed their rules. They've changed their guidelines. They've done it through administrative rule. They've done it through directives as opposed to going through the legislative process. That's never good because whenever those things happen, it puts people in a defensive posture and they wonder if things are being done with nefarious intent. Right, especially when you see something in a very contentious election year where it comes down to the wire and then all of a sudden people can't seem to get their act together. That does, whether for, for good or for ill, it does raise questions about whether or not there is some kind of nefarious thing going on in the background that, that people can't see. And that actually is why I wanted to ask about this. There's a lot of information floating around there. Good information, bad information, and I've seen a lot of conspiracy theories going out that are 100%. I mean, you, you can tell just by doing five seconds of research they're a complete hoax. But then I've also seen some that seem fairly credible. So if you could help us kind of sort through the weeds here, uh, could you mention maybe some of the ones that there's no truth to and some of the ones that it may merit some further investigation? Well, a couple of things that have been brought to my attention on a regular basis since Tuesday. One of them talks about watermarks that are placed on the ballot. So people are able to tell who voted for whom and which ballots to discard, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's all just a lie. It really reminds me of the Doug Jones, Roy Moore campaign in 2017, because people would make things up and then they'd publicize them on the internet, either through Facebook, Twitter, uh, other mm -hmm. social media platforms. The watermark conversation is one of those things. ESNS, which is a company called uh, Election Systems and Software, is based in Omaha, Nebraska. And ESNS is our election systems provider. Now, ESNS actually has uh, the contract for several states around us. So they have a printing facility up in Hoover where they make ballots for five or six states. And we're one of those states, but their headquarters are in Alabama. Hmm. And there is no conversation with them about watermarks or anything like that. That's all made up. I mean, it's fabricated just created for social media purposes. Another thing that I've seen floating around is a couple of ladies that were interviewed, allegedly interviewed at an alleged polling site in Arizona that were told they had to use Sharpies to vote. Right. That they had to put their mark on the ballot with a Sharpie as opposed to a pen. And then not able to go back and, and correct that. Now, I never heard them say that their ballot was rejected and that their ballot did not count, just that it was a problem because it fled through. Mm -hmm. if, if you have that situation occur, when you place your ballot in a tabulator, the tabulator will reject your ballot, which means it will spit it back out, and your vote will not count. Now, in voting, it's not like the lottery. You don't go and you don't buy your ticket, and then if you didn't win, you're done. When you put your ballot in the machine, if it didn't accept it, they don't say, sorry, your vote doesn't count. See you next time. Mm -hmm. 
they say, we're sorry, there was a problem with your ballot. It has been spoiled. We're going to need to give you another ballot. You're going to need to remark it. And then at that point, you would remark it, and then you would submit it, and then it would count for the candidate of your choice if there was a problem. Mm-hmm. If there's no problem, you're going to see the number increase from number 118 to number 119 to number 3,812 to number 3,813. But you can see that yourself when you put the ballot in the machine. So these people that are saying these people were denied the right to vote, that's a lie. That didn't happen. So I, I don't know what happened, but I know that didn't happen the way that it's being presented. Okay. So are there any out there that are being credible? For example, the, the 4 a.m. and the 6 a.m. ballot dump that took place in Michigan and Wisconsin. Uh, it, it was bizarre. Now, this state is, of course, not in contention, and it went for Vice President Biden. But one thing that I thought was really, really odd is that in the state of Virginia, they had been counting votes, and then all of a sudden at like 11 at night just decided to stop, which seemed very strange. Uh, is there well, anything to worry about there? Or? Yeah, they did that yeah. in Georgia, too, and that, that was a problem. And I don't know why they did it the way that they did it, because in doing it that way, it creates confusion, and people mm-hmm. believe that there's going to be some nefarious activities ongoing. And, and they're not going to be confident that what happened was was done with accountability and transparency. And that creates confusion for everyone. OK, so so let's talk about the ballot dump by Nate Silver. He posted this at 538. And uh, I, I'm, I'm guessing you've at least heard about this story that uh, I think in Wisconsin it was 4 a.m. And in Michigan it was 6 a.m. You, you, it might be reversed. But anyway, uh, you, you see the normal trajectory of the election that votes start coming in. Donald Trump starts early on pulling ahead, and then he gets to the point to where he's got a sizable lead on Biden. And then all of a sudden, there is a straight up and down line that just goes straight up on votes for Biden. And none of those votes happen to go for Trump. None of them went for a third party candidate. There was no error or rejected ballots. You just see a massive ballot dump all in Biden's favor. Is there anything to be concerned about there? Yeah, I can't understand that at all. That does not make sense. That does not make sense mathematically, because there would be at least one person that would have voted for the president. And to think that all those ballots could have been submitted in a legal form and all of them support Vice President Biden, that doesn't make any sense. So I don't know what the election observers did, but I do know this. Each one of those states and each one of those polling sites should have had election watchers Mm. who were on standby, provided by the Democratic Party and the Republican Party to witness what was ongoing. And if they saw something occur that raised an issue, a concern for them, then they should have addressed it. They should have reported it instead of us just witnessing the numbers increase or decrease on TV. Are you following me? I am. Yeah, and so that goes back to the state Republican Party and the state Democratic Party on being prepared or not being prepared to make sure that the witnessing occurs. One thing that made me a little suspicious about that, too, is in those particular ballots, you saw a dramatic and immediate increase for Vice President Biden, 
but you didn't see the same thing for Democrats across the board in those states. For example, if you're looking down ballot, there was a very close Senate race between a Republican and a Democrat senator, and the totals remained the same after that ballot dump took place, which means that out of those votes, it didn't seem like anyone or at least not a significant number of those people voted at all down ballot. They just specifically voted for Biden, left the entire rest of their ballot blank, which also well, tends to and be And there's going to be, yeah, and there's going to be some undervotes in any race. There's right. no doubt about that, but not to the point that you're raising where it was more than 100,000. That's mm-hmm. just not, it's not even, you can't even contemplate that. So, My question is, what can some of these states do in the future to make sure that something like this doesn't happen, that we can report earlier? Because I think it's it's long been, and I know that this is not the norm for other countries, but it's long been something that's been very good about America is that we tend to know the results of an election pretty close to when we actually vote. We do. And Caleb, one of the things that has to take place, and I issued an editorial about this this morning, we have to make sure that all of these states in the union and, and look, there's something we need to talk about for just a second. Okay. We don't have a national election and we shouldn't even talk about there being a national election because there's not a national election. We have 50 state elections. Mm-hmm. And in those 50 state elections, we elect someone for national office. Right. That's what we do. What we have to make sure of, is that those states are consistent in administration of their election every election cycle. Mm-hmm. So all, in example for Alabama, all 67 counties should be doing things the same way. In Florida, all 67 counties should be doing things the same way. In Pennsylvania, all 67 counties should be doing things the same way. In California, all 67 counties should be doing things the same way. The, the state should be consistent in the administrative aspects of the election, no matter where you are, no matter what's going on. You should not have uh, 23, uh, uh, 23 counties in California doing it one way mm-hmm. and 44 counties doing it another way. That's not acceptable. And we have some of that going on right now. Right. And, and I know that you're not this way and I'm not this way either. I, I don't want there to be a national standardized federal election system to where every state does everything the same way. But states should be internally consistent because it is a state election. You are correct, my friend. One thing that I wanted to ask about, too, because this is another story that I saw that kind of set off my spidey senses. And I don't know if anything weird happened here, but it's enough to raise suspicion and, and merits further investigation. Uh, There was a county in Michigan. It's a rural county. And back in 2016, it went 30 points in Trump's direction. This time it went 29 points in Biden's direction. That seems highly, highly suspect that in four years it completely changed the demographics of the county. What's your reaction to that? No, that's crazy right there. You would not think that that could have been either A, reported correctly or be recorded correctly mm-hmm. because when you see a dramatic change like that that means the the number of people and the people that participated in the process were completely different than they were before right i mean it's almost like they transplanted a bunch of people from portland oregon right into this rural county in michigan within the span of 4 years and that just seems very very suspicious to me that's right absolutely
All right. So we've talked a lot about some of the stories that have been floating around. Is there anything else that the voters need to know about this process? When, when do you expect that we will have an answer? Well, I think over the weekend you're going to see uh, some confirmations occur. And, of course, in Georgia now, uh, it was interesting. Secretary Lee and I were talking last night, as I mentioned to you. She's the secretary from Florida. Right. And she asked me, she said, what do you think is about to happen in, in Georgia? And I said, well, with what's occurring now, you're going to see uh, the president lose the state. And, and the, at the time, he was still ahead by like seven or 8,000 votes. Right. He I just said, inched ahead uh, not too long ago. So, yeah. And I said, you're going to see Vice President Biden win the, win the state by like three, uh, two to 3,000 votes. I said, that's what's going to happen there. And of course, they have an automatic recount if it's within a certain percentage of separation. And that's what you're about to have. So that's a concern that needs to be meted because there's a lot of people who believe that Georgia was stolen from the president. Well, Mr. Secretary, I have to say, because I was talking to some friends about this, uh, when it comes to these, at least the appearance of something that could be fraudulent, something that could be wrong, I was explaining to them, because they're like, do we have to really chase down every single rabbit that pops out of this? I was like, actually, yes. And the reason is because... Let's say that we do an investigation, turns out everything was above board, that it wouldn't have changed the outcome of the election. It's still important that we look into it because if there is a hole, if there's a hole in the wall of the fortress, all of a sudden people are going to see that and go, hmm, that might be a good place that we could exploit next time because they didn't look into it this time. You are dead on with that comment. That's the reason why you have to assess and evaluate each and every report that's given to you related to voter fraud because the one that you choose not to track down may be the one that they introduce next time to take advantage of and you can't allow that to happen well absolutely uh before we let you go here and i do appreciate you uh, uh taking time to to talk to the voters of alabama and and really around the country to try to help us understand exactly what's going on here uh, is there anything else that we need to know that we need to be prepared for in the coming days? No, nothing I can think of related to our state. Mm -hmm. I think other types of information will continue to be introduced uh, related to the administration of the election. It's a concern about other states not being consistent in the administration of their election. And we have to continue to force the Congress to look at this but we do not want federal overreach from Congress in this area. Sure. So that, that's very important to remember, too. So I guess my, my last question then here is, what's next? What happens? Does the president wind up fighting this in the courts? Do we, you know, is it it's sort of a Bush v. Gore situation to where we may not know who the president is for several weeks on end? Uh, do, does this come out in Biden's favor? Does it come out in Trump's favor? What are you predicting happens? Well, I think it's going to be extraordinarily hard for the president to be successful, but I would not be surprised if uh, there was a court challenge. But you've got to have empirical data to back up your position if sure. you file a suit in court. Well, I think that that's 100% fair, and as much as I do want President Trump to win, I, I want him to remain the president, obviously. What's most important is whoever actually did win the election is the one that is in office. As, as much as I would like for Trump to win... I go where the data goes. 
That's right. And that's what we have to do. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Mr. Secretary. I know that you're extremely busy right now. You're, you're even riding around in your car as we speak, but we certainly appreciate you taking the time to, to speak to the, the audience here. Thank you, Caleb. You take care. Yes, sir. You have a good one. Appreciate all you do. That was Secretary of State John Merrill chiming in. And I got to say, that was from the perspective of the inter- that that's one of the better interviews that I've ever done. And I'm not saying it's, you know, because I'm such a great interviewer. I just ask normal questions. Uh, but it does highlight the fact that we seriously, seriously need to make some corrections, look into it, because I think that both I and the American people understand and know that as much as we want our guy to win, it's most important that whoever actually won the election, whoever actually did wind up winning this thing, that they get it. But that's not the only thing. As important as that is, the only important thing is not whoever actually won the election takes office. That's obviously big. But what's also important is that the people believe that it was done fairly. Because if you have people that believe we have an illegitimate president sitting in the White House, it is going to be significantly harder for that person to govern. It's going to be significantly harder for any Americans to trust their institutions and believe that their vote counts. And that's the last thing that we want. And so I really think Secretary of State John Merrill and other people that are honest arbiters, that are, that are really just trying to make sure whoever is supposed to win the election won the election, I appreciate guys like him and the other secretaries of state that I know that are out there working hard that are trying to do exactly the same thing. There may be some out there that have nefarious intentions, but hopefully we weed those people out, and I really hope we have an answer very, very shortly. Thank you so much, and we'll be back in just a second on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for staying with us here on Tactics. I'm going to go ahead and jump into our Alabama coronavirus update. Now, I know it has been some time since we did one. I apologize for that. We've just had other things. There is a whole lot of crap going on in the world. Welcome to 2020 for anybody that is watching this that doesn't remember. Uh, So, I don't know, maybe somebody years from now will be back looking at this like, man, there was a lot going on in that year. And there was, there was. So just so you know, the Alabama coronavirus update, we currently uh, have a fatality rate because we have 199,158 confirmed cases, 1,379,107 tested, 3,026 deaths, and 21,027 hospitalizations. Now, if you look at all of those numbers, That gives us a fatality rate because our fatality rate had been dropping steadily and it at one point had been up in the fives and the sixes. Now it's down to 1.52. 1.52. Now I want to remind you that because of the CDC's estimation that it's actually about 10 times as many people have it as we think have it, And by the way, they do that for the flu and basically every other infectious disease. They always guesstimate how many people actually have it and just weren't tested. So they think that it's probably 10 times the number of people that actually have it, which means if if their estimates are correct, and there's no reason to believe that they aren't, that the real figure is probably 0.152. 
So that means that the fatality rate, if we're looking at it from this perspective, inside the state of Alabama as of now, is only about 50, well, it would be about 52% more deadly than the flu. Still a big deal. But it's not anywhere near the 5 and 6% that we were originally thinking this was to think that it would be 5 or 6 times deadlier than the flu because originally the, the estimation was that we were going to get about a 0 0.5, 0.6 fatality rate, which would make it 5 or 6 times deadlier. No, it's 50% more deadly, but it's not even twice as deadly. It's about 1.5 times as deadly. So still serious, still a big deal but nowhere near what was projected. And let's go ahead and take a look at some of these numbers and extrapolate them, show what they mean. So you can look here. These are the Alabama coronavirus cases. Our seven-day average of new cases for this week is 1,430. The previous seven-day average from last week, 1,726. So as you can see, that is a decrease of 296. We had a lot of cases last week, and we are coming a little bit down off of that with 296 people per day less getting the virus than before. Let's go ahead and look at the monthly averages. This is a 28-day average for the past four weeks. And remember, of course, we are still in a mask mandate, and Governor Ivey announced that that will be continuing for a time. We'll get into that in a second. But suffice it to say that the monthly average of daily cases is 1,046. The monthly average for the previous 28 days before the mask mandate was put into place, so June the 18th through July the 16th, when there was no mask mandate in place, was 1,156. So there is a decrease of 155. That, that, that's supposed to be a decrease. So uh, we are seeing a few less cases than we did beforehand, though it is important to note that that has not always been the case. In fact, for months on end, we had not had a single 28-day period where we had had a decrease rate in that. And so they're pretty much the same now. But we are seeing less cases per day uh, than, uh, now than we did back when there was no mass mandate, but it's basically the same. And especially considering how up and down that has been, we've seen uh, times where it was significantly higher than when we didn't have a mask mandate while we had a mask mandate in place. There's really no reason to believe that the mask mandate was the cause of that. So let's go ahead and... Uh, let's go ahead and look at the new COVID hospitalizations. The seven-day average for this week, 112 per day. The previous seven-day average, 114. So basically the same, a decrease of two, but that's statistically about the same when it comes to hospitalizations. Now, let's compare the 14-day average. So two weeks overall, 113 for the two-week period that we're in right now versus the previous 14 days, 103. So we are on an increase when you're looking at two-week averages for that, an increase of 10. Nothing to be alarmed about, but, you know, there is a, a bit of an increase. And then hospital is, or sorry, Alabama COVID deaths, when you're looking at the seven-day average for this week, we averaged, unfortunately, 16 Alabamians losing their lives per day to this. You're looking at the previous 
seven-day average, and that is going to be 10.1. So we're actually seeing an increase in coronavirus deaths of the when you're looking at this week. And that's, you, you saw, if you remember and, and go back to when we were looking at new cases, that's kind of to be expected because we had a, a really big uptick in cases about two, uh, two weeks ago. And so now we're having an uptick in deaths. That's just the kind of way that this thing goes. That is, of course, an increase in 5.9. Now let's go ahead and look at the monthly averages compared to when we had no mask in place. So back uh, right now, the 28-day the period we're in now, we're having 14.4 deaths from COVID per day. In the previous 28-day average before the mask mandate was put into place, it was 14.3. So our death rate is basically the same. It's so small that it's not even, it's just a tenth of a person. I know I sound like an episode of Andy Griffith saying that, but that is an increase. Oh, that's a typo there. That's supposed to be an increase of 0.1. I don't know how that typo got in there. But anyway, so you understand looking at all of this, the death rate comparatively has remained roughly the same. We are a little bit down on new cases, but just a week or two ago we were not. And so that keeps going up and down as to whether it's higher or lower when it comes to new cases. And the masks don't really affect fatality because a lot of people might look at this and say, well, Caleb, you're saying the masks don't work, but our fatality rate continues to go down. Well, first of all, it's been working its way down for a long, long time, way, way before we had a mask mandate. It's been working its way down for a while. And on top of that, masks do not affect fatality. They don't affect fatality at all because all you're doing is comparing the number of people that got the virus to the people that died from the virus. And so the fatality rate is unaffected by how many people get infected, which is what mask is supposed to do. In fact, if anything, the fatality rate would look much better theoretically if everybody took off their mask and made out with strangers in the street and just everybody got it. And then we would have less, if, if we had every person in the population with it, there would be, of course, an increase in deaths, but not as much as there are right now if we just had no precautionary measures. And so the fatality rate going down is not an indication that the mask is working, the mask mandates are working. In fact, the fatality rate would probably look significantly better if there were no precautionary measures in place whatsoever and everybody got sick. Now, I'm not suggesting we need to do that. I'm just saying that if you're looking at the stats and you're using that as a measure, that would actually be better for the fatality rate and driving that down. So if anything, if the masks actually are working, and I have serious doubts that they are, but if they were, that would actually be hindering the fatality rate dropping, not helping it. Therefore, let's go ahead and look at the governor extending. And, oh, I, it looks like I actually don't have a clip here, but... Governor Ivey has extended the mask ordinance to December 11th. So the mask mandate is, is now prolonged even further than it already has. I don't understand why, but Mima apparently thinks that we've been bad and have to stay in our rooms and, and wear the diapers on our faces for longer. I, I don't understand the rationale here. The numbers, there, there's nothing in the stats that suggests that this is a good idea whatsoever. There's nothing that suggests that states that have kept a mask mandate in place are having a, a better time of it or a worse time of it. In fact, you can look at the stats. We've done this over and over and over again. The, the opposite seems to be true. I'm not saying that 
not having a mask mandate makes you less likely to die or less likely to get higher case numbers. I'm just saying that there doesn't really seem to be any correlation between the two of them. It seems as though the, having a mask mandate can, is uh, makes actually contracting the virus, there is no effect, there's no relationship at all between those two things. But Governor Ivey did offer an olive branch in her incredible magnanimity. She said that uh, we're going to be relaxing capacity restrictions on places like businesses and restaurants. Thanks, Meemaw. Really appreciate it there. You're really doing us a solid by allowing more people to be in a business. Here's the thing that's so frustrating about this. If the masks work, why do we have capacity restrictions at all? If the masks actually do what they're supposed to do, which is keep people from spreading it as long as everyone's wearing it, why do we need to have any capacity limits? And if capacity is the thing, then why do we need to have masks? None of this makes any sense. It doesn't make sense to do both at the same time. Because if the mask actually did stop the virus, there would be no reason to worry about being around large crowds of people. Because you got a mask on, that's going to protect you theoretically. But if capacity is the thing, being around other people is the thing, and that actually is what's spreading the virus, if that were the issue, then the mask wouldn't matter. And so it just it's it's absolutely absurd this thing that she's doing, none of the restrictions, and, and Kay Ivey is like a lot, a lot of other governors, unfortunately. A lot of the restrictions and regulations that are being put in place don't have any basis in science. There's no data that suggests that what they're doing will actually be effective or do what they want it to do. But why is it... One thing that should be a big consideration here is... Is anybody actually adhering to the mask mandates anyway? I think a lot of them are. Is anybody actually doing what the the capacity mandates say? Probably not. Granted, this is anecdotal because there is no hard data on this. And there will never be hard data on this because people are not going to be honest about it. They're going to hide it and conceal it. And there's not enough time to really do a survey of this. But I'm just telling you what I'm seeing. I'm going into different places, uh, different businesses, different restaurants. Nobody is adhering to the capacity limit. Now, granted, I'm, I'm not saying that they're packed in there like corkwood or anything, but I'm just saying I've been I've gone out to several restaurants and they don't have tables closed. Some of the big national chains do. They'll actually have some of their tables closed, but even then, I've seen people eating on tables that are supposed to be marked off and. Uh, they're not supposed to be able to eat in. And I don't, I just don't think that this is going to make a difference because she's saying, well, we're going to loosen those restrictions up and let you let more people go out and, and do that. Uh, okay, but I don't think anybody was actually listening to them by this point anyway. It seems like the people of Alabama have decided amongst themselves, which is a decision that I agree with that we're kind of out of the woods on this when at least for the most part, and they've kind of taken to where they're not as serious about the restrictions when it comes to capacity, and they're not as strict when it comes to mask mandates. They're just kind of tired of this, and they're just kind of letting it go, which I think is a good thing. But 
it does go to show and sort of highlights the fact that just because you put a regulation out there doesn't mean that people are going to adhere to it. And so it kind of reminds me of a thing that Auburn did a few years ago when I was in college there. For the first two years, I think, I think it was, when I was at Auburn, we had this thing called Dead Day. And the way Dead Day works is it's right before finals, which, by the way, are coming up. So college students out there, I feel you. Been there, too. The way that Dead Day worked is it was a day that you couldn't schedule any events associated with the university whatsoever. You were not allowed to have any kind of class, no test, nothing. You, you couldn't make assignments due on that day. just wasn't a thing. And the reason for that is because Dead Day was a day that was supposed to be set aside to give students the ability to study. Well, they had to do something goofy with the schedule one year, and I guess it just got compressed or whatever, and so they scheduled Dead Day on a Saturday. Really? Really, Auburn? You're going to take a day that we already had and say that, well, that's Dead Day now. It's kind of like if you have a really crappy friend that comes to your birthday party and while he's at your birthday party finds an object that you already own and wraps it up as a present and gives it to you as though he's giving you a gift. I'd rather you just not get me anything than to act like you're giving me something by giving me something I already have. At least if it, at least if you're just, you know, giving me something that I already have, or sorry, at least if you're not giving me something that I already have, at least then I could be like, well, you know, it kind of sucks that I didn't get a present from you, but whatever. If you're giving me something that I know was already mine, that I already had anyway, you're not doing me any favors, and frankly, I'm just kind of ticked off by the fact that you're there pretending that you're doing me this great favor or doing something that was nice or thoughtful for me. And this is kind of the way that I feel about what Governor Ivy is doing right now. She's acting as though she, out of, you know, the generosity of her heart, which is such a big status thing to do anyways, to act like they're permitting us to, to act as though the people in government are permitting us to do something like engaging in voluntary commerce in a free market. Uh, to Governor Ivy to permit restaurants to increase their capacity and have a larger amount of people in their stores than they already were when they were kind of ignoring or already doing their own thing anyway. That's not a gift that you're giving to me. It's like Auburn with the whole dead day thing. I would rather them just ignore it. Uh, another thing, too, that she talked about when it came to restaurants is she touted them using plexiglass, which is incredibly stupid because it's plexiglass. It's just a barrier that goes up, I guess, between booths or between tables. Does anybody not understand how the virus works? Are you blanking on that one? Because it seems to be based on the most recent evidence that we have, and this has been out for about a month now, that it's not even surface contact. In other words, water droplets fall onto a surface and you pick it up and then touch your eye or something like that, that we originally believe that it seems as though a bigger factor is people being in close proximity with each other while the air conditioner is running, uh, I think about 15 minutes is what they're saying the limit is, is going to be. Well, if that's the case, do we think that the virus can't go over the plexiglass or beside the plexiglass? No, when you're in the magical fortress of seatedness, the 
the virus apparently can't travel anywhere. And if you put up a plexiglass barrier, the virus will just know, oh, we don't need to go over that. They got plexiglass. <laughs> I mean, it's just stupid. It's like, uh, even though I, I love the Blue Angels, I'm not trying to diss the Blue Angels. They're incredibly skilled. I, I think that it's really cool that they do what they do. And I know that their feature is primarily recruiting for the Navy, not actually fighting off bad guys. I, I get that. They're kind of like Captain America for the first, I don't know, 20 minutes of the Captain America movie in First Avenger where he's not actually fighting bad guys. He's just going out and recruiting, basically a showpiece. Uh, it's kind of like that. Like the, <laughs> And again, I, I love him. No disrespect to the Blue Angels. But it's just funny. It's kind of like uh, the, the bad guys are going to look up and like, Oh, the perfect diamonds. What are we going to do? <laughs> Did you see how close those planes flew to one another? It's not a combat skill. It's for show. And that's what the plexiglass seems to be. That it's it's not actually doing anything to curb the spread of the virus. And by the way, there have been several studies that have been published now that have shown that restaurants and bars are not a significant spreading point anyway. This is done. One even came out of New York and said that restaurants and bars in New York weren't spreading events. There weren't people that were catching the virus from going in there. And so, again, none of this is based off of science or data. They're basically just doing arbitrary things because they can. Now, I'm not saying that Governor Ivy has malicious intent here. She probably really does think this will help, but there's no reason to think that it actually will. And that's why this whole thing is just dumb. And I had a friend actually bring up this point that I hadn't even thought of, so kudos to them on this one, who's going to clean all the plexiglass? Because plexiglass looks really bad when it gets stuff on it because, it's, you know, it's it's plastic, it's clear. And so it gets really dirty, it's difficult to clean. And so not only are you going to have to, as a small business that probably has already been hit super hard by this pandemic if you're a restaurant, not only do you also, if this is the case, you have to take the financial hit of buying a whole bunch of plexiglass, which is super expensive, and you're already struggling to just make break even. Frankly, you know, you're doing super well if you even break even this year because of all the stuff that has happened. Now you also have to pay extra labor costs for your employees to clean the plexiglass. I mean, this whole thing doesn't make any sense. It's an undue burden upon the businesses of Alabama, and Governor Ivey shouldn't even have suggested this. This is a, should not be something that is in the mandate that she's talking about here. And then she said this line, which I thought was pretty good. People need to wear the mask so that we can stay open. Excuse me? We've got to wear the mask so that we can stay open. So what, you're going to lock us down if we don't wear the mask? Is that what you're telling us, Governor Ivey? Are we going to start another round of lockdowns? Because the World Health Organization, even they, who have been 100% on board with the whole mask thing, that at, back in the day were 100% on board with the shutdown thing, and granted they've not been the most consistent nor the most reliable, but my point is they're an organization that has a stake in pretending as though shutdowns were a good thing because they were the ones telling everybody that they have to shut down. Even they came out a few weeks ago and said, shutdown should not be used as a primary means of controlling the virus. If you need it to give your medical system time to catch up and be ready for when the virus hits, then it makes sense. But if you've already got plenty of 
the materials that you need. You don't have to do any preparation for it, which at this point we shouldn't have to do, and our, our hospitals are actually getting significantly better at treating the virus, not worse. Then there's no reason to shut down again. And so what she's saying there is not that we need to shut down again because if you don't wear the mask, our numbers are going to get too high and we, we've got to shut that down. What she's saying there is, you do what we tell you to do or else we're going to come up with another punishment for you. Governor Ivey, in her southern draw, southern woman charm kind of way, is saying, look, if y'all don't do what I tell you to do, I'm coming after you. We're going to have a punishment for you awaiting if you don't do what I tell you. Who does she think she is? This is nothing but a very thinly veiled threat. To which I say, bring it on, Meemaw. I... The mindset ticks me off so much. The idea that the government knows what's best for you and will tell you what to do, and if you refuse to comply, then they are coming after you. They will make you to care. And this is something that Governor Ivey should not be doing. But... I have to say, I think that my favorite part of the whole thing, the best part of her whole speech that she gave to the state, was when she was asked by a reporter why we're seeing a rise in cases. Which was a good question. This journalist asked a very good question. Simple, low-hanging fruit, obvious, sure, but still, it needed to be asked, and I applaud them for that. But her response was, because people aren't wearing their masks. So you're telling me that the reason that we're seeing an increase in cases is because people are not wearing their mask. Doesn't that kind of disprove the idea that a mask mandate works? I mean, if a mask mandate worked and everybody was wearing their mask, frankly, I don't think that that would do any good because we're also seeing basically exactly the same spike happening all around the world right now, including in other countries, in places like Italy and Asian nations where their people tend to be much more compliant, much more willing to do things like wear a mask. We're seeing it in Italy. We're seeing it in the UK, which is getting hammered right now. We're seeing all of those things. All of that is taking place in places where people are wearing the mask, and it's also taking place in blue states that have much more restrictive mandates than we do, and yet Governor Ivey's rationale is, well, the reason we're seeing an increase in cases is because people aren't wearing the mask. Then why do we have a mask mandate in place? If the mandate doesn't work, if people are not doing it, then why is the mandate in place in the first place? It's obviously not causing people to wear their mask if that is the case. And here's the other thing. Prove it. Prove that people are not wearing their mask. How are you going to prove that to me? Are you keeping stats on this? Or do you have officers of the state of Alabama walking around checking off how many people are wearing their mask? No. Governor Ivey doesn't know this. She's just making a guess and throwing it out there because she thinks it helps her narrative. That's it. She has no idea if this is the case or not. And Scott Harris doesn't either. Now, he didn't respond to that, but if he had said the same thing, 
that wouldn't matter either. The idea that this magical mask, once you put it on, it makes you immune to the virus, and if people were just wearing their mask, we would have no new cases. Um, no. We seem to be having rates pretty similar to way before we had a mask mandate. There doesn't, There is no evidence worldwide that wearing a mask decreases the rates. None. And so, uh, you, you, even if you believe the idea that the masks themselves curtailed or made it less likely for you to contract the virus, there's absolutely no data whatsoever that the mandates are stopping the virus. And that's the reason that this is so stupid. And then she said at the end of this, look, I know this can't go on forever. Do you? Do you really? Because you seem to be acting as though you do think that it's going to go on forever. There's no end in sight, no plan, no benchmark that you give us. I mean, granted, this would be dumb, but at least if Governor Ivey was like, well, if we're getting below 800 cases per day or something like that, at least then there would be some kind of benchmark, but just, no, just sort of vaguely, well, I think we need to keep doing it, so we're going to keep doing it. Why do people in government act like they can control our lives? And here's the other thing. This all ignores the fact, everything that I've talked to you about this far, completely ignores the fact that the mask mandate is still unconstitutional. The Constitution of the state of Alabama does not afford the governor the authority to do this. And so, even if all of the other stuff weren't true, even if the mask actually did work, the reason that we weren't wearing the mask is because, or the reason that we were getting higher cases is because we weren't wearing our mask and we needed to enforce it more properly, even if the plexiglass thing worked, even if all that were true, still doesn't change the fact that Governor Ivey does not have the authority to do this. This is an unconstitutional act by her. And that's the first question that anybody should ask when the governor does anything is, is this something that the governor can actually do? And if the answer is no, then they shouldn't be doing it. Let's go ahead and go to the Daily Dose of Stupid. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. <laughs> and for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, I know that they've been the source of stupid many, many times on this segment, but it is, of course, going to be the media and let's go ahead and check out this clip. This is from MSNBC, and the reporter is in Detroit, Michigan. Of course, Michigan was a state that now it looks like that Joe Biden probably won it, and even if there is fraud detected, it would be very difficult for Trump to even prove that that level of fraud took place to where he actually did win the state. Maybe so. We'll continue to keep an eye on it, of course. But either way, this is at a vote-counting facility where a bunch of Trump supporters showed up outside the door and basically were, were protesting and giving talking about their wanting the president to win and so on and so forth. They were basically just organizing and assembling and standing there. And this is how MSNBC characterized that event. Watch. Behind me is Detroit's TCF Center. This is where poll watchers are racing to try and count all the votes outstanding here in Wayne County. But what we see here 
is essentially an increasing mob-like scene of self-proclaimed poll watchers who say that they want to get access to the building. So many of them have rushed into the building here that I'm actually talking to official Democratic poll watchers from the Democratic Party who've been shut outside of the balloting room, which they're supposed to have access to. Eamon, it's gotten to the point where we do have a police presence here that is blocking access to the building because not only have they swarmed the room, but they are now over in terms of COVID restrictions. Man, you got to love MSNBC. MSNBC is, is terribly afraid of that group of people. It's, it's a mob scene out here. Those people are just standing around talking to one another. <laughs> I mean, honestly, if there was not a reporter standing in front of them telling them uh, telling me what is going on, I would have no idea that was a protest. It just looks like a bunch of people gathered in front of a building. You could go on any street corner in a, a decent-sized city. I mean, of course, Detroit's a pretty big city. But if you go to just a decent-sized city and see a whole bunch of people standing around outside... You wouldn't even know that that was a protest if they weren't telling us that it was a protest. Now, maybe at other times when they were chanting or something like that, you could tell. But my point in all of that is they're acting as though it's a mob scene. It's like the mafia out here. They're just waiting to, to murder somebody that rubbed them the wrong way. It's just a bunch of dudes standing around and talking. That's really all it is. But no, MSNBC has to convince us that these, these Trump supporters, they're incredibly dangerous. They're, they're very terrible, and, and we must be very scared of them. It's like a mob scene out here. And by the way, this is not the only occasion of them doing this. They were doing this same routine MSNBC was in Maricopa County, which, of course, was the county that was in great contention down in Arizona. So we'll check out that uh, scene right here. There are a lot of people uh, that are very, they have their emotions running extremely high. So anytime these lights come on, uh, you see people running towards uh, the cameras and then they start screaming and they've got a bullhorn. So they've got some uh, some sheriff's officers up uh, that are blocking the entrance of the, the election uh, center. We're going to walk this way here. And one of the things that we've seen is uh, right now they're they're kneeling in prayer. But one of the things that we've seen is uh, them chanting very loudly, count that vote, count that vote. Uh, and then we've got poll workers that are coming off of shift and the poll workers have to be escorted out by uh, armed sheriff's deputies down those stairs and into vans and taken away from here. Uh, so this is a type, uh, the type of scene that we're seeing. We're going to get a little bit closer here. We don't want to get too close. Uh, a lot of people uh, in the crowd are, are, are not wearing masks. We're, we're keeping a, a respectful distance, um, but a loud and very boisterous crowd. You'll start here and then uh, start up here. And they're actually chanting, Fox News sucks. I do love that they're chanting Fox News sucks and, and their coverage and calling the state early was really stupid and Fox News gets what it deserves as far as I'm concerned. But I do love how he's actually walking through there talking about how scary it is and, and how this scene is about to bust out in violence and he's like, well, you know, they're praying right now so it's pretty quiet. It's like, do you remember the last time that somebody was in the middle of a prayer and just uh, bust out in the middle of a violent rage? That's not a thing that happens real often, and I tend to be around people that pray a lot. We have a daily chapel, well, three times a week now because of the virus at, at Faulkner, and 
I go to church quite a bit and lots of prayer meetings, lots of Bible devotionals and Bible studies. And so there's a lot of prayer around me a lot of times. And I really don't see a whole lot of people that just go into full on Hulk rage in the middle of a prayer. It's not like you're going to be, uh, and Lord, we, we pray that you would bless this food <gasps> and just like punch somebody out. It's not a thing that happens real often. I don't want to say it never happens. <laughs> Maybe there's an occasion of it, but not not a common occurrence when it comes to people praying. And it's just so funny that he's actually talking about them praying, and he's like, "Well, uh, it's it's very scary. Where there's really high emotions, and you could tell he's like flustered and and trying to fall over himself. He's trying to figure out a way to characterize them as being potentially violent, while he's, you know, about to step over one that's kneeling down praying." Uh, MS, you gotta love MSNBC. And the thing is, in both of these clips, both of these clips that we just showed, they're very, very concerned about social distancing. Did you notice that? They're very concerned about it. The one guy's like, well, we're gonna try to keep our distance because a lot of people aren't wearing masks, and so we're gonna try to stay away from them. And then in the other one, she was talking about that part of the reason there's a police presence is because they've exceeded the limit of people that are allowed to gather because of the idiotic governor there in Michigan uh, Gretchen Whitmer, the, the idiotic things that she has put in place to try to prevent the spread of the coronavirus, well, they've exceeded that now. And so they're very, very concerned about the social distancing, very, very concerned about the spread of coronavirus. My only question is, where was all this concern when we were seeing all the Black Lives Matter and Antifa protests? Because there's what, maybe... 30 or 40 people in each of those videos just based on eyeballing it 50 or 60 maybe at the absolute most i remember seeing literally thousands upon thousands probably somewhere in the 10,000s if not more in LA and they are neck and neck, they are shoulder to shoulder just packed into the streets of LA and i don't remember anybody from MSNBC going about man they're they're not social distancing this is going to get really bad I don't remember that ever happening when it was those. And here's the thing. Hypocrisy is always bad. If we were to point out the mainstream media and them having completely different standards for one set as they did for the other, and this were like a really, really, really long time ago, that would be bad enough. But this was like, what, two months ago at the absolute most? Some of the violent riots and protests with people not wearing masks, with people bunching up together, with people actually shouting and yelling in people's faces, which, I mean, if there was a way to spread the virus outside, that would be the method to do it with. It's unlikely to happen outside. But if there were someone that could contract it from being near someone outside, you would think it would be with someone literally shouting in their face and chanting and all of the other things that went on in these protest, I mean, yeah, they were mostly peaceful, but even the, the actually peaceful ones, that kind of stuff was going on. And I don't remember anybody from MSNBC talking about how horrible it is that these people are just blatantly ignoring social distancing protocols. And in both clips, you also notice that they're trying to cite police presence as a precaution, uh, as a reason that these guys are violent. They're like, yeah, there's this uh, crowd of Trump supporters and uh, there's police officers here. There's actually a police presence. And I love the guy on the second clip there in Maritoba. He's like, well, we haven't turned our lights on because we're afraid that they're going to like 
these emotions really high here and they're like gonna swarm us and like yeah those people looked like they were really about to attack the camera crew right there when we have right here in the state of alabama in birmingham when all of these riots started breaking out in one of the black lives matter riots that we had al.com journalists attacked i mean had stuff thrown at them and they the the reporters were physically harmed they had a camera knocked out of their hand at one point and so that totally peaceful nothing to see here nobody from msnbc talking about how horrible that is but when it comes to a bunch of uh, trump people hanging out outside of a voting center just uh yelling fox news sucks they're like don't turn the lights on they might see us they might come out of it and attack us <laughs> these people i mean it is just absolutely hilarious and of course, the hypocrisy over the social distancing thing and the hypocrisy over the police. Here's the thing. Police presence being there, that's a good thing. And I say this as somebody who is sympathetic to the cause that these people are also concerned about. It's a good thing police are there because even if they don't appear to be violent, even if it doesn't look like they're going to do anything wrong, those people should absolutely have police there. There need to be police there to guard the buildings, to make sure that the votes are protected just in case something does happen. And when those poll workers work at, walk out, there should be a police presence there just as a precaution. But you don't cite the precaution as proof that these people are actually violent. In the same way, when we're taking a precautionary measure, for example, like with a seatbelt, if a guy puts on a seatbelt, you don't go, oh, he must be a terrible driver. He must be reckless. Well, well, no, it's a precaution. It's in case something happens. It's not proof that the thing itself will happen. It's just in case something happens. Police showing up and guarding these places is a good thing. And police even escorting people out because they think there might be violence. Because here's the thing. Would you really put it past somebody in Antifa to shed the black and just look like a Trump supporter, hide out in this crowd, and then when a poll worker comes out, just like club him over the head or something so that he would try to make these people look bad? No, I wouldn't. And here's the thing. Trump supporters aren't perfect. They're not all angels. Maybe somebody on the Trump side would do that. I don't know. Hasn't happened yet. Hope that it doesn't. Certainly doesn't look like it would. There might be an isolated incident of somebody that was crazy and willing to do that. But my point in all of that is, is that the police should be there anyway, but you don't cite the precautionary measure as proof that these people are doing something wrong because they're not. But MSNBC, the greatest hypocrisy is the one that we're going to look at here where they try to categorize these people as wild and violent and people we need to be scared of and we need to kind of cower back and, and be careful about these people. But I remember MSNBC, the same network, and, and Al Vashti actually covering the riots in Kenosha and other places around the country. I, I remember that happening. I, I, I want to be clear in how I characterize this. This is a, mostly a protest. Uh, it, is not, uh, it is not, generally speaking, unruly. Oh, yeah, not unruly with a giant fire behind folks it. on the fringes of protest that do the things that uh, we, don't, we don't like. A few people who break a few windows and burn a few cars. Discount people who are doing things to public property that, that they shouldn't be doing. It does have to be understood that this city has got... Uh, for the last several years, an issue with police. So many good people out there who want change and who are demanding change. 
Oh, I love uh, old Joe Scarborough. That comment sounded suspiciously like you were trying to say that there were very fine people in the violent riots that were taking place there. Uh, but anyway, I, CNN played this game too. There was a CNN reporter that earlier today was basically doing a very similar thing. And, and we all know how CNN was with Don Lemon and Chris Cuomo actually coming out and being apologists and basically saying that it, this, this violence was justified and this is just something that's okay in our country and we shouldn't be so shocked and appalled by it and Antifa violence isn't as bad as right-wing violence and all this other crazy stuff. And, and they came out doing exactly the same routine, being scared of these Trump protesters. There was a shot where they showed the crowd, which, again, like maybe 60 people. And they were acting like they were, this was going to bust out into a riot in any moment now. And no, no incidents. They're like, well, they have to be escorted out their car. Again, that's a precaution. They should do that. But that's not evidence of violence. Nor is it something to be af afraid of. I mean, frankly, if there was no crowd, if there was zero crowd, nobody in sight, if we're talking about, especially in one of these swing states where this vote is incredibly important, there should be a police officer walking with that person, that poll worker, to their car, regardless. And so, I, <laughs> here's the thing. The media are such horrible, obvious hypocrites. It's amusing, it's funny, yes, but they don't even see their own hypocrisy. They don't get it. To them, it just makes sense to be scared of Trump supporters. It just makes sense to be afraid of anybody that thinks differently than them because they are bigots. That's what a bigot is. They fear those who think differently than they do, who have different opinions than them. It's no different than being afraid of somebody because he has black or brown skin. It's no different than being afraid of somebody because they happen to be homosexual. I mean, yeah, that's sinful, but that's not a reason to be afraid of them or think that they're going to attack you. It's the same thing. The only difference is they're bigots when it comes to intellectual diversity. Anybody that doesn't think that Trump is some kind of evil, horrible orange monster that wants to, to kill children and, and take or sorry, to um, take children away from their parents and kill illegal immigrants and all that other stuff. If, if you don't think that way, then you're to be feared. But people in Black Lives Matter and Antifa, yeah, they're burning down a city, but it's like mostly peaceful. Al Vashti, there's literally a building on fire behind him. And he's like, well, you know, it's not really all that unruly, but a bunch of Trump people getting together and kneeling and praying. Uh, don't even turn the lights on because, you know, they might, they might swarm us if they do this. You've got to be careful. These guys are violent. And they don't even see how ridiculously stupid that is. Ultimately, what the media is doing here is they are asking you to not believe your own eyes. Don't look at it. Don't look at what you're seeing behind us. Listen to what we have to say. Listen to the story through our filter. We will tell you what is going on here. You're not smart enough to figure it out for yourself. Don't look at the story unfolding right behind you, which obviously those reporters felt safe enough to be around that crowd. The one guy was even walking through between members of the crowd there and obviously didn't feel all that threatened. Just ignore all of that. Just listen to what we're telling you. We're telling you that this group of people quietly sitting there and praying in front of a voting place, that those people are dangerous. 
and the people that are rioting and looting, burning down cities, well, that's just a few people, and it's mostly peaceful, and it, even when they do it, it's kind of justified. Uh, but they're, they're not somebody to be afraid of. This is just part of the process, and, and this is just something that's okay. They're just such a bunch of blame. They're just such a bunch of hypocrites. Don't believe your eyes. Don't believe what you're seeing. Just believe us, and we'll tell you everything you need to know. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Chaplain's Report today, we're actually going to be foregoing the Book of Samuel and the series we're doing on that one, at least for today. We'll pick it up later. But I just had to go with this one because I feel like we need it. And I know that a lot of you are in the same place that I am where I'm frustrated with the fact that we don't have any answers yet. I'm frustrated with the fact that this is taking so long to figure out who our next president is going to be. And that uncertainty naturally breeds things like anxiety, like fear. And that's something that I don't really have. And it's not because I'm some kind of spiritual giant or that I have everything figured out. It is stressful but I'm not necessarily afraid or anxious about the results, and the reason is because I do know that ultimately everything is going to be okay. Because if Biden does wind up being president, and right now it seems as though he probably will be, it looks as though that even if there is actually legitimate voter fraud, and even if we really do find it, that the numbers are not good enough for Trump to overcome it, even if we find out there is fraud. It looks like Joe Biden is probably going to be president. It's not certain, but it's very it's the most likely outcome at this point. And Biden is going to be very, very bad for the nation. I understand that. It'll be bad for religious liberty. He's going to be, I mean, it already has been, but especially considering that he's basically a Trojan horse, that he's not going to be the one making a lot of these calls or, or calling the shots here, that you're, we'll be subject to the bake-my-cake bigot kind of justice system that we had under President Obama. That's something that's going to be difficult for us to endure, especially as religious people. Biden is going to be very, very bad for the country, but the thing is, Trump was not going to be a savior. Trump was not going to fix all of our problems. I mean, we had four years under Trump. Were we still under assault by the left? Were there still people in individual states trying to curtail things like freedom of speech and religious liberty and, and calling everybody that disagreed with them a racist and a bigot and trying to shut down churches? Yeah, all that stuff still happened. Having a Trump Justice Department at the top of it made it a whole lot less likely to succeed. But you're always going to have to face persecution for doing the right thing, no matter who's in power. Even if we resurrected George Washington and put him in the White House, you know what? The country still wouldn't be perfect because there's people in it. And even though I really wanted Trump to win, Trump was not going to be a savior, and, and Trump winning this election is not going to fix all our problems. It didn't fix all of our problems in the last four years. 
And I think that that adds a little bit of perspective. And I thought about this particular Bible verse in what I consider probably one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible, with the exception of the Gospels. If you're talking about the epistles especially, this may be the best chapter in all of the writings of Paul in Romans 8, and we'll look at verses 31 through 35. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for all of us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will be bring charges against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, but rather was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who also intercedes for us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or trouble or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul's whole point there is pretty simplistic, actually. It's saying, take a step back, look at who is on your side and who is on their side. You have Christ on your side. You have an interceder who is sitting on the right hand of God. You have a God that loves you enough to send his only son to die to save you, even though he didn't deserve it and didn't do anything wrong. That's how much your God thought of you. And you're worried that there are some people in Rome that don't like you? Who's going to separate you from the love of Christ? Who is able to do anything to you that God can't undo or protect you from if he needs to? Nobody. I mean, look at our position here, guys. Let's say that Biden is president for the next four years or maybe even the next eight years. Do we really think that Joe Biden is stronger than God? Do we really think that Kamala Harris, as much of a train wreck of a president as she will be if she winds up in that position, does anybody really look at her and think, oh yeah, if, if it's a contest between her and God, she, she's got a good chance of, of staying in the ring with him for more than one round? No. There will be things that come that we don't want, that are unpleasant, that aren't good. But ultimately, we're going to be just fine. We may have to suffer some things. The world is going to hate us. It always has. It always is going to. The servant is not greater than his master. They hated him. They're going to hate us too. That's just the way that this works. It's really more of a question of how much persecution you're going to have, not whether or not you're going to suffer it for doing the right thing. In fact, frankly, I get kind of freaked out when I don't experience some level of persecution because that makes me think maybe I'm not doing something right. And when you look at those verses, if you want the cure for fear or anxiety or paranoia or even being disjointed and, and set, set apart and separated and, and mentally away from other people, the chaos that is this world, that's the answer, folks. Just remember that you have Jesus Christ on your side. He who conquered all things, who conquered death itself, is in our corner. So no, I'm not afraid of Joe Biden. I'm not afraid of Kamala Harris. I'm not afraid of what they can do to me. What if they do turn America into some kind of crazy socialist 
USSR-style country, which I don't think even they can do that. But if they did, and they make Christianity illegal and they come for us, I'm not afraid of them. I'm not. Throw me in the gulag, kill me, whatever. I'll be okay. And you will too. Yeah, I'd rather Trump be president, but that may not be within our power. And anybody that sits in the White House is there because God allows them to be. There is no authority given that is not given by him. And why is it that you think that the bad guys always go after God's people? They either go after Israel in the Old Testament or the Christians in the New Testament. Why do they always go after people of faith first? You can look at it through the Holocaust. There were Jews there, and there were also Bible scholars in those concentration camps. You look at the USSR, they got rid of all the preachers and got rid of religion. Why do people in power always go after God's people? It's simple, because they know those people, the real believers that have actual faith, they don't answer to them. And it scares them that they can't use fear and anxiety to control those people. Because when you answer to a higher power, when you answer to God, and you don't answer to a worldly authority, when you're far more afraid of doing something that God wouldn't want you to do than you are of what Vladimir Putin or Joseph Stalin or Hugo Chavez or, or insert name of dictator here, when you're way more afraid of offending God than you are of him, then you're going to do what God wants and not what the dictator wants, and that scares the mess out of them. That's why they persecute them. They're afraid of you, and they should be. Remember that. They might have the army, they might have all the guns, they might have all the cards from the world's perspective. But we're holding the ultimate card. And not like God's some kind of sword to be used or, or to pull out whenever, because I don't think that that would be a good characterization of it. But the point is, ultimately, when it comes to eternity, we win. If you've read the book of Revelation, you understand that. If you understand anything about the Gospels, you know that just because it seems like the world won, it doesn't make it so because there's an empty tomb that proves that's not the case. And that's why having Jesus on our side is the ultimate boon. Guys, I love America. I do. Probably more than most people. Not because I'm a better person, just because I've studied it more. I love America as an idea. It's not the land. It's not the military. It's not the wealth. Even though those things are all great about America, none of that stuff is what I love about it. I love the concepts, the idea that man can rule himself. I love the idea of us having a right to life, liberty, and property, and we have inborn God-given rights that predate government, and the government just is there to protect it, not to give it to it, and not to take it away either. That the idea of America is, we'll leave you alone and let you figure it out on your own, and if you do great, awesome. You'll reap the rewards of that. If you're not good at it, then you're going to need some help from somebody else. That's what America's supposed to be like. And I love that. But you know what? If it all comes crashing down, it's only my secondary citizenship. My first citizenship is in heaven. And 
the ideas are going to last forever. That's what I love about America anyway. If we lose the land, if we lose the wealth, if we lose the military, if we lose the prestige, if we lose all of that, that's unfortunate. It's terrible. I wish we wouldn't. But ultimately, America still lives on because those principles are rooted in Christianity and in truth. You see, in the Old Testament, there were a whole lot of people that put their faith in their armies or their people or their land or their wealth. It never ends well for them. The people that put their faith in God and don't have any faith in wealth which can come and go overnight. Don't put any faith in their armies because those can be wiped out too. Or they can turn on you. Don't put their faith in land because somebody can kick you off of that land. You can be disposed from that land, as the Israelites and Judea found out over and over again. You know what never left them? God. He was always there. He was always looking out for them, even when they screwed up and did something that they shouldn't and wound up in a situation, usually of their own making, that they didn't want to be in. He was the constant, and that's why I'm not afraid. Nothing Joe Biden can do can change the fact that Jesus Christ came to this earth and died on a cross for my sins. And so if he becomes president, I'll live. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt, only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.